Hi everybody, Jeff Watts here and welcome to another episode of the Agile Pubcast. This one is a little bit different. We are back in lockdown in the UK, lockdown 2.0. I wonder if it's going to be an improvement this increment. Uh, so we can't go to the pub anymore and we thought, well, let's try something different rather than just Paul and I in our homes slash sheds. So we invited a couple of our patrons on. Patrons are people who've been supporting us financially and investing in our kit and experimenting with things over the last year or so. They, they value what we do, so they buy us a drink now and again. And one of the, the rewards that we give them is a chance to appear on one of our episodes. So today we've got a couple of people who have been supporting us for a while, Per Muller and Gianni Sawyer. And they basically brought the questions with them. So we had a couple of conversations about um, zombie scrum and how to move from compliance with agile processes to more of an engaged work uh, environment and how to deal with a complacent team, a team that's uh, done pretty well, uh, but they've got more to give and more to get how to how to motivate or inspire uh, or encourage that team to, to go to the next level. And after those conversations, we moved on to something that was sent into us by another of our patrons, Andreas Spittler. Uh, he was giving us the scenario of uh, a product owner who's being held accountable for the financial success of the product, but doesn't necessarily have all the responsibilities necessary to deliver on that. Um, we, we were asked basically, what do we think a product owner should be in control of if they are being judged on the financial success of the product? So we hope you enjoy this episode. It was good fun for us. Uh, if you if you are interested in being on a future episode, then then subscribe to our Patreon account and you'll be in with a chance. Anyway, we hope you're carrying on well, uh, staying positive and testing negative. Here's the jingle. Hello. Hello, mate. Hello, Jeff. Oh, and we're in a we're in a, we're not on our own today. We're not. We're we're not alone. We are back to remote though. We're home. We're home. We are at home. Yeah. The pubs have closed, but we've got we've got our guests. Our Zoom so we, guests. We can invite people remotely. Yeah. So we are we're not breaking any laws. No, let's be quite clear about that. We're not breaking. We've got two of our very good, very good supporters and friends. With us, would you like to introduce yourselves? Pear first. Of course, uh, my name is Pear, uh, or Pear in, uh, if you want to go a little bit more British, uh, but Pear in Danish. Uh, I'm from Denmark, um, small city just outside of Copenhagen. Um, I work at a small Danish insurance company. Um, mainly, I'm I manage a couple of our cross-functional teams, but I was hired as a Agile coach back in the days. Um, done a lot of uh, agile transformations and stuff like that, but now it's mostly agile leadership uh, on a day to day basis. Yeah. Cool. Welcome to the podcast, sir. Thank you. And Janny. Yeah. Hi, everyone. So my name is Janny, or it, it taken from Pear's uh, lead. If you want to say it in a more English way, it's Gianni. Um, <laughs> Um, so I'm currently working as a kind of scrum master and I, I guess agile coach too for uh, also for an insurance company at the moment, which is kind of kind of kind of strange. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so so I'm, I'm part of a, a digital transformation program that's come out of their kind of marketing division. So it's quite interesting actually because we're kind of actually kind of spearheading bringing that that company kind of kicking and screaming into the 21st century. So uh, 
exciting times um and of course lots of uh, lots of challenges so um I've probably worked in agile teams for the past seven or eight years started off as a business analyst and um for my sins I'm now a scrum master nice one nice one welcome to the podcast to you as well yeah, so for everybody else's benefit we've, we've invited a couple of our our patrons along who, who've been supporting us for probably about a year now i imagine um and every now and again we like to to hear their questions they've, they've got good experiences and good questions for us and they'd like to put us on the spot a little bit but we thought we'd change it up a bit and actually rather than them throw a question in and us try and answer it we just have a bit of a chat about them so um it's a it's a normal episode uh in in that regard in that you guys are all you've got a drink right even though well, we're in yeah, social yeah. distancing so what are you guys drinking Gonna go Paul first. Well, mine's very predictable. So uh, <laughs> I thought, well, let me go with one of our guests because people can probably guess what I'm drinking. <laughs> After you, Pat. Yeah, well, I have, um, I, most of you, uh, of course, know uh, Carlsberg, but mm. uh, we have a lot of small breweries as well in Denmark. So I've brought uh, something from a small brewery in uh, the middle of Denmark, actually, a small island called uh, Fyn just between Sealand and Jutland. Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually from just around the city where uh, Hans Christian Andersen was born. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a uh, body Has wine. It's got a story to it. Um, yeah, a little bit, uh, but not much. Actually. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's actually um, a small uh, local brewery who uh, was started by an American uh, called Eddie. Um, they do a lot of uh, really, really good uh, beer, but this one's a little bit special. So it's a barley wine, um, but he kind of uh, saves a little bit of it and then puts some of it on uh, belt uh, rum uh, cakes. Okay. And let it age for yeah. a little bit. So it's, it's a bit special. Oh. Um, yeah. So it's a rum, it's got a bit of a rum taste yeah, it. so it's kind of uh, a little bit more sweet than the the beer would normally be uh mm-hmm. and then it, it really sweet smells that will as well it's really really good i love it very good there you go and uh, the official glass as well oh, oh wow. look yeah. at that nice glass is you, do you, you you purchase that from the brewery as well yeah very yeah. nice yeah uh it looks good as well Gianni. Well, how can I follow that? I mean, I've, I've actually got, <laughs> I've got a very mainstream bottle of Corona that I bought from a supermarket. So, you know, <laughs> oh, topical though, you pick Corona, topical. I like it's that. Corona, absolutely, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Their sales have gone ridiculously up since this pandemic, right? I thought it was the opposite. I thought no one was buying it. No, I've, I've I seen can... a lot more Corona in the last nine months than I've seen in the last nine years, I reckon. Oh, right, okay. Maybe it's just what I've noticed, but... Yeah, you. Whenever I used to drink that with with some kind of fruit in the neck, didn't you? Isn't that wasn't that the yeah, a bit of lime, isn't it? A bit, bit of lime, yeah. A bit, bit of lime, yeah, absolutely. Uh, no lime, I'm afraid. No, that's okay. <laughs> now growing lime is quite nice. Paul, so what what type of cider are you drinking? Today? Well, I've got a choice of two. I'm probably going to drink them both, but um, I thought I'd give uh, let's give pair the, uh, the the choice here. Let's uh, number one or number two. Um. Number two. Number two. All right. But I've drunk this before and it's and it's in terms of cider, it's sacrilege. It's basically flavoured cider. 
but number two is this. It's a um, a can of Strongbow Dark Fruit, mm. which is like Ribena. Um, if you, and if you don't know what that is, pear, it's like uh, black currant cordial. Yeah. yeah. So it's um, very sweet, very red, and exactly what cider probably shouldn't be. And cider makers and cider drinkers will be uh, furious at me drinking this. There we go. Well, it's not really one for purists, is it? No, no. You never have been. No. Uh, but I, I don't feel too sorry for me, but I, I'm currently on a non-drinking day. So I, I don't have a drink, just a, just a glass of water. And I'm going to struggle on while I'm watching you drink these gorgeous-looking drinks on a Friday. It's a long, it's a long lockdown, Jeff. You'll, by the end of it, you'll, you'll be back on the booze. Don't well, you? exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, hmm. I'll, I'll struggle through. I'll struggle through. So we had um, we had some questions. Who, where, what's, who would like? Let's let's go. Let's start with Gianni. So, tell us what your question was, and then we'll see where it takes us. Yeah, sure. Um, so, I posed the question about how we um, how we kind of get our teams to move past the point of just complying with the textbook rules of Scrum or any other kind of framework into more of an engagement kind of model where they truly believe in it and they kind of immerse themselves in it. Um, I know that the the term zombie scrum is used mm -hmm. quite a lot and, and that, that, that's kind of what comes to mind. It's just kind of going through the motions, ticking the boxes, but actually um, I think the real value and benefit only really comes when you really, really kind of believe in it and as I, as I say, kind of immerse into it. So I guess the question was, you know, from, from, from your experiences, what, what things have, have, have you seen that, that's worked or maybe failed as well to kind of um, get teams to move into that, into that mode? So the, I think the first thing that springs to mind is, was there ever engagement or has it always been box ticking? Uh, In this hypothetical probably, scenario that you're painting for us. Yes, absolutely hypothetical, completely. <laughs> it's probably been... Uh, a mixture of both in terms of how the various team members look at things. And interestingly, that changes <laughs> from sprint to sprint. So, you know, a, a bad sprint can kind of demotivate people. Um, good sprints kind of pick up that motivation again, and then you start to see the engagement build. And then, um, you know, if something doesn't quite go to plan, it's probably taken a little bit too seriously and a little bit too personally. Um, mm. And it kind of goes back to, oh, okay, sorry, you better do this then. You know, planning comes around, okay, we'll just do some planning and we'll just get on with it and keep our heads down rather than really kind of buying into the values of Scrum. Mm. Um, yeah, go on. Go on, Paul. No, I was, just, I was going to ask a different question, but if you're carrying on that theme, then carry on. Well, no, it's just interesting that you've got, I always like it for me when, when there's, it's not all the same the data points aren't the same so as long as there's one exception then you've got something you can work with for me and so if you've got some examples where there are higher levels of engagement than others then you can start looking at the the patterns and the contrasts and interesting i think you started to answer your own question there in a way in that they're starting to take things too personally when things don't go wrong when things don't go well uh, and yeah, the word that came to mind for me there was resilience uh, in terms of can we roll with the punches can can we actually accept these 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 less than ideal 
um, sprints with as much enthusiasm as the ones that that go well um, and whether that's an internal thing you know just personally they have maybe it's the perfectionism drive there or something for individuals or whether there's sort of more of a culture of you know you cannot fail type thing um, that that's what sprung to mind for me i was going to say i talk a lot in my courses and that this is very much in my mind because it's it happened just yesterday um i talk a lot about purpose and um mainly with product owners actually but it's equal to to anyone who's doing something doing scrum or you're being asked to do something is trying to understand their part in it and 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 the companies that i've seen um that have made good use of purpose has, has created that level of engagement people care a lot more when they can they can see the difference that they they make um to to other people and i think i, I tend to see more of that the opposite of that that kind of zombie scrum that kind of uh, box ticking where people don't really see their part in the in the bigger picture and for even for some large organizations they really do struggle how can i attach my my team to a sense of purpose when it is such a big organization but inevitably there is someone who's going to benefit or suffer from whether you do your work or not, or whether we do this this way or not. Um, and I think there's no one way to do it, but um, I've heard some real good success stories from just like sprint reviews and um, a company that I won't name, they take their developers, they used to before lockdown kicked in, they, uh, they used to take their developers hire a car and just go to different customers um, at the end of each end of each sprint so and do a review on the customer's premises with a group of developers in the car and that would work wonders because people then start to actually we're going out on a trip to actually see a customer they're real people um, and then you start to get real conversations and real relationships that start to form um, and that's one one pattern I've seen is is genuine customer engagement rather than um, just you know uh, ticking the boxes and 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 doing product backlog items. Can I weigh in here? Yeah, please do. Um, what uh, came to mind to me was actually we tried to do, to do a lot of um, experimentation when uh, teams kind of um, stopped moving on and, and maybe lost a little bit of engagement. So if, uh, if we saw that, then I kind of made them uh, define some new experiments just to try out, uh, actually just to reinvent themselves or um, lower their barrier to actually not wanting to do anything else, maybe. Um, just to make it more easy to actually get into something new. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe some small experiments that... that what kind of they, experiments? Yeah, that could be... Uh, that's a good question, actually. Um, just a new way of uh, attacking, I don't know, uh, one user story you want to do. Could you do it in another way? And uh, of course, make them define their experiments themselves so they engage in how they actually want to do it. Um, um, what else? I don't know. Um, I suppose I could throw some more meat on the bones in terms of this hypothetical situation. Mm. So the team we're in, we don't, we even though we're a, we're a digital program, digital team, we don't actually have developers within our team. So essentially, we are almost a product design team. Mm -hmm. 
so we so we have basically kind of you know product designers uxers bas product owner that sort of thing so actually the outputs the outputs in our sprints as it were are almost like uh, you could treat them as things that might be inputs for developments or things to go into a statement of works for suppliers to provide us with yeah so they're so, not end to end valuable customer deliveries in their own right absolutely yeah so and as part of this team, because of the nature of the business at the moment, we it's easy to spot the pattern. So I think the good sprints are probably when we're purely focusing on driving the product design forward, user testing, research, that sort of thing. Mm. The sprints that don't go so well sometimes are, pro, are, are more often than not related to activities that take the team away from that that kind of focus. So things like preparing for an RFP process, yeah. you know, really stale, boring as hell. Um, but inevitably there needs to be some product input to make sure we get the right outcome. Um, and so I think, so I think absolutely. So, so I, I mean, I'll definitely take the point on running some experiments, experiments on how we can tackle things differently. Um, we've started more recently um doing a kind of vertical slice approach. So where we've had like architecture and solution designers and that sort of thing, and they've been a little bit removed, one layer removed, we've actually brought them in and said, for any given sprint, let's focus on one feature or one story, and we'll go completely top to bottom. We'll look at the UX, we'll look at the different scenarios, customer types, and any key architectural points or designs that we could make out of it as well. So this is, this is starting to work? build that in did, did that lead to, to, to high motivation or low motivation? It definitely, there's a, there's an uptick for sure. And I think it links into what Paul was saying. I think, I think knowing how an individual's work can help another, another individual on the team. I think that has an added benefit because before I arrived, there was, I mean, I, I had the luxury of almost like a green field, you know, scrum creation, scrum team creation. And, um, it was all very much waterfall. So, you know, six months for requirements, six months for a basic architecture document. But now we're working in a way where we're just slicing it vertically. And I think that value and that engagement and knowing where they fit into the process, I, absolutely. I think it's um, probably key, actually. Do you, yeah. think, do you think Gianni in this purely hypothetical situation, um, is any of this related to, is it time related? Is it, is it a recent thing? Is it, could it, any of it be related to the current constraints we're under from remote working or anything like that? Um, strange you mentioned that. I think, I think for, for, I'm basically working in two teams. On one of the teams, they've taken to it perfectly. Um, on the other team, maybe not so much, but what it has done, it's actually improved communication, I think, within the team. Um, so I think the whole notion of this question really is probably baked baked into the very traditional culture that exists in the business. Okay. Um, and I think the the bit around transparency probably scares a lot of people. Yeah. And it's it's almost like it's a difficult pitch to say we want to make everything transparent, but we're not doing it for any negative reasons. We're doing it because we want to help each other and you know, um, share what kind of what we're working on and all that kind of good stuff. So it's a, 
I don't think it's helpful to be honest. Um, but I no. think, but I think it, it was always there. It, it's it's a very new way of working for them. I just think you, you mentioned that that vertical slice approach because for me, and I'm I'm definitely not talking about your context because I don't know your context, but one of the downsides of an agile approach is if you're doing things bad or you're doing bad things or you're doing things badly, then it will really highlight that. So if we suck at testing or we suck at integration or and you know, we end up delivering something that is just an input to somebody else doesn't really get to see a customer, then you'll get that thrown in your face and reminded of that every iteration until you manage to do something about it. And, and it sounds like Pear's suggestion of, of experimentation is something that you unconsciously did you, know, you had some sprints with certain deliverables and you had some sprints with different types of stories and some went well and some didn't go so well. And without really consciously inspecting and adapting, it sounds like you did. And that sense of end-to-end -end delivery, there was an uptick. Uh, so playing with your definition of done is a, is a more generic thing that I would encourage a product owner to do if they were seeing this kind of thing and seeing a sense of lethargy. Um, but going back to Paul's point, around purpose there's a reason why the organization as a whole is doing this you both you and peer talked about transformations and transitions these 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 have a reason there is an organizational need to do things in a different way and your your question of you know, how to get a team to believe in the process well is the process that we're using actually helping us meet that need so if it is about getting value to our customers quicker are we seeing any evidence of that if it is about improving the quality of what we do are we seeing any evidence of that because for me to have faith in a process believe in a process personally i'd need some kind of evidence that it's working otherwise I've, why bother um uh, that's that's yep. seems to me what what what's coming through for you is that actually you've actually done a lot of that stuff without realizing it yeah, and, and and to be fair to the guys, there we 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 run a retro every two weeks, and they really enjoy the retros. And actually, they they are very open and honest in the retros, which is really good because we always have stuff that we want to try. So um, even small things like I, I know Paul, you mentioned obviously being kind of remote during lockdown, etc. Well, actually, one of the things that came out was just too many bloody meetings. Yeah. Can we can we as a team just decide to have, you know, meetings booked in until one o'clock? Then after one, only by exception, so we can get some work done. Mm. So even just things like that, and making sure that I hold the team accountable to that, and anyone else kind of coming in, I think that 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 can result in an uptick in motivation and positivity as well. Mm. And as soon as we start to slip on those things, we can start to see that that you know kind of heads drop and chins drop a little bit. I heard a good phrase, good phrase the other day. Um, a, a good scrum master maximizes the amount of meetings not needed. <laughs> I thought someone tweeted that you quoted you on that. Well, they may they may well have re referenced me in it because it was an inter in a, an interview that I did. So oh, it came I up see. in a conversation. Right. It wasn't me that said it. Okay, but it was in a. You can claim it. That's fine. You can take credit for it. Um, what I was going to say, uh, I've had a half a pint of, of dark fruit now, so the ideas are coming to me now. Um, <laughs> Uh, I think when you mentioned the retrospectives, Gianni, as well. So don't be afraid of the word engagement, right? So why not do this? Is I'm, I'm, this is a blatant suggestion, right? Not not a great coaching approach here, but um, why not have a retrospective on what do we how how do we define the word engagement? 
what does engagement look like to us as individuals, as a human? So not just in a work context, but how do we feel when we feel engaged in, in a conversation, in work, in family life, in a, in a project at home, in putting up a shelf, whatever it might be. But, but what, if you can actually define what the word engagement means as a team and let other people hear it, we'll start to, to know what pushes each other's buttons. So if I can start to understand what engages you, maybe I'll be, I'll be just a little bit more aware when situations might come up to think, actually, Gianni might actually like this. This, this might be something that he's, he will enjoy. And the team might be able to help each other out with it just by blatantly calling out the word and say, what is it, what, give me a picture about what that looks like when it happens. Yeah, no, that's a, it's a really good idea. It reminds me of a retro we did probably about a month or two ago, and it was based all around the um, Scrum values. Yeah. And, they, and, they, and they really bought into kind of focus and commitment. And it was around the time that, you know, as I say, working remotely and that sort of thing as well, it was just having that time to be able to get stuff done. And actually, all, you know, every little kind of 30 second chat in the office became a 30 minute meeting. Yeah. And so that that focus and commitment thing really, really rang true. But yeah, the point around engagement, I think is a good one. I'll um, make a note of that and I'll let you know how it goes. Excellent. Cool. Hey, you had a question that you wanted to talk about. What was that? Yeah. Um, basically, it's about how to, uh, you can take it on from, from Gianni's uh, question, actually, right? So how do you actually get people to keep on inspecting, adapting, moving on, even when they think themselves that they have come to a point where we are agile, we are doing stuff the right way. We have come as far as we can. Mm. Um, how do you get people to keep on improving themselves? They have maybe, I see teams that have become kind of uh, complacent, right? They get kind of full of themselves and uh, think they are the top of the pop. Yeah. Um, so how, to, how do you keep teams moving that are actually doing really, really great? Um, as, and maybe uh, uh, the same goes for the organization as a whole. So mm. you've come quite far with your agile mindset uh, and the culture itself. Yeah. So how do you keep on moving from there? So it's not so much about zombie scrum. It's almost complacent scrum. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, it reminds me of um, I had a conversation with a team once who said, we're doing scrum, but we don't we don't do retrospectives. And I said, I was curious. So that's interesting. Why? And they said, well, we're, we're pretty good. You know, um, we don't really, we just rather do the work to be honest. Um, we're working really, really well. We don't need the time to, to do that. So yeah, we just don't need them. And uh, someone else said, how do you deal with that? How, how, you know, what do you do with a team like that? And so my, my advice genuinely was, um, it might sound quite facetious, but my advice to that team was you should leave. You should leave this company. You should set up your own startup and be a team for hire because the perfect team could charge a lot of money. Hmm. Yeah, the team that's absolutely nailed their process and, and were perfect in what they didn't need to improve anymore. You could be earning a lot more money than you're being paid here. Uh, but the fact that you're not leaving means to me that you're not confident as you say you are. So yeah, I think every team's got something to improve. Hmm. Paul, you've come across this as well, right? Yeah, I was gonna say, so, um, I have a company that's a quite a regular coaching engagement with them. 
and quite often I'll go in just to catch up and and have a chat with them, see how things are going. And don't get me wrong, this is a company that's done some very good things. Like you said, Pear, they've you know they've taken Agile on and they've seen some genuine improvements. Um, but they see me as as um, I think maybe it's just me, but they see me when they see me, they they feel they have to tell me what's wrong or what 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 they need what needs to be put right. Now I think improving, and this is we tend to beat ourselves up, I think, a bit too harshly sometimes. When you, if you are improving, you can still be doing good things better. So improvement doesn't always mean finding what's wrong and correcting it. And which I think a lot of teams get caught up in that, thinking, looking for the negative to make it positive, looking for the, the, the error to put it right. And I think it's a bit of an engineering kind of background to it. But there are actually, why not um, balance it by saying there are a lot of really good things that we're doing well how can we amplify them even more and that's a different way of looking at improvement so rather than just focusing on if you're running you might genuinely be running out of things that are going wrong i know that's like jeff said somewhat of a utopian kind of scrum experience but there are teams that are doing a lot of good good stuff and not a lot of things wrong so why not just try and really turn up to 11 that the stuff that we're doing well and see what that brings and see how that changes how we work so I think, yeah, it's, it's not talk, it doesn't always be focused on the bad stuff. Yeah, I mean, on that on that thread, I would often talk to teams about you know, some some real examples of amazing teams, and, yeah. and usually they come from from sport or Olympics or something like that. Um, and the, the the British cycling team was a, is a classic example of just marginal gains, continually improving, just by a little bit. Yeah. and beating your personal bests so okay you may be better than everybody else but you can still be better than yourself and that that feeling of being able to get better is quite a an addictive one mm. um and the flip side to that is that generally speaking the big failures in industry and in the world are usually organizations that have become complacent so you know your, your kodak moments your nokias and, and and what have you they're the ones that haven't innovated they've felt safe and it's that apex predator theory the, the the organization that is optimized because they have a market dominance are the ones that are most fragile to market changes and the same for teams if you become excellent at one particular thing you keep optimizing 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 you're not very resilient if things change and so how is resilience important to you um, is a question I might ask. Mm. You said, yeah, it's good, interesting thing. So looking at even when a team is, is riding high and kind of, yeah, on that, um, it, it will sound a bit, it will come across a bit negative, but putting a spanner in the works and saying, what do we need to be cautious of here? What are we, what, what, what blind spots have we developed here that, that we've, we've become oblivious to, we've become immune to. So, calling out that that type of um, um, mis, misjudgment or whatever it might be, or just, just something that might get missed, of being the, the um, putting a spotlight on, on everything and not, not just focusing on um, uh, what we might be missing. Hmm. What do you think is, is really behind it, Pear? When, when, you, when you look at these teams, what do you think is really underpinning that? that um, one of the things I have observed myself is that maybe it's become you've you've removed all the small rocks along the way right so maybe you can only see very very big rocks yeah uh, and you don't really know how to remove those 
Mm. We, have, we have actually done a couple of reorganizations along the way to help the culture grow. Um, so we have removed a lot of big rocks as well. But then again, teams run into big rocks, no more small rocks, what to do. So maybe, maybe they need some kind of help to actually break those big rocks into smaller rocks. I don't know. Um, Maybe I, don't just... I, I don't know where I'm going with this, but I think there's a, for me, what came to mind there is, are they, are they too used to success that they're worried about putting themselves out there and looking like they failed for the first time in a long time? Have they, have they, have they lost that feeling of safe failure? Yeah, perhaps. Uh, and maybe, I don't know, after what's, it's been, four years almost maybe uh, the now spotlights not really on them anymore as well so maybe there's, there's some kind of fatigue as well mm -hmm. um, so maybe they don't feel that if they actually fail maybe nobody will actually see that they are failing uh, on a daily basis maybe i don't know it's it's kind of the spotlight's kind of gone right uh, honeymoon days over stuff like that so to quote we, me and jeff um quote tim harford a lot don't we jeff um we love tim harford stuff if you want to look him up he's on on ted and been written various books um but tim harford um basically um one of his um suggestions theories was about embracing mess but it's basically saying yes to the mess messing things up mm -hmm. so especially when um you're in that kind of um mode where maybe things are getting a bit stale or a bit repeatable you know we're we're um we are we're doing well but are we getting a little bit complacent that might be a great time to literally throw throw everything up in the air and see where it lands mm. Dip, dipping into dipping into chaos um and seeing what emerged basically to, to keep teams a little bit more on edge it's a it's a bit dangerous it's a bit risky it's a bit provocative but um i know i know one company that's literally said all right now well, we're going to stop stop work uh, all the teams uh, are now being disbanded and we're going to reform you're going to self-organize back into new teams mm. and you can't go back into the same teams that you were just as a way to you know reinvigorate and, and liven up um scrum team um, discussions and, and, and ways of working just to get new ideas yeah and again that, that um... probably cause a lot of uh chaos of yeah. course uh, and and resistance as well uh, but maybe it's all for the better in the long run yeah Jenny? yeah sorry i was just i was just going to say I've, I've been kind of sat here quietly and there's a few things that kind of pop, popped into my mind so i suppose the first one is uh kind of how how would a team kind of measure themselves against achieving that utopian state of being agile so you know is it and obviously I don't know anything about your teams, but is it because that they've got the highest velocity in the organization, which, you know, as, as, as we all know, doesn't necessarily equate in value being, being provided, obviously, and again, not, not being kind of personal about your teams, mm. but there's this, there's, I was thinking about the kind of scientific approach where whenever there's a kind of a scialtific theory or hypothesis and, the trick is then to almost try and disprove yourself, right? So if you think that you truly are the best agile team in the world, or, or at least the business, what what can you do to try and disprove that to yourself? Like, you know, and, and 
you, you, you almost try and disprove it. And when you fail at disproving it, you're almost validating, okay, so maybe maybe we are, maybe, maybe we are pretty good, but you know, just keep, just keep chipping away and thinking, well, how can we unsettle ourselves? How can we kind of break this equilibrium that we find ourselves in? Or, you know, are there other metrics? Or are there other measures that we're not considering mm. um, just to try and change that point of view maybe? There's yeah. an assumption under all this that they want to. And they might not. They might be absolutely comfortable mm. where they are. Um, and as an organization, I suppose we'd have to ask the question of ourselves, do we want to risk what is effectively a very, very good team um, to try and get an extra, I don't know, whatever percentage might be in there somewhere? Yeah. Um, or do we just let them coast for a while? I suppose that's that's got to be considered. Um, but looking at their individual motivations, you know, their motivations as a team, um, generally, my experience is people would like would like to be able to to do something better. They they, they like improvement, um, but once you've got something, you have that loss aversion. You don't want to lose what you've already got. So kind of maybe they just don't feel safe enough anymore to to keep improving because they feel they've got too much to lose. Yeah, yeah. Maybe just going on from there, Jeff. Maybe. Also, you kind of over the years uh, focus more and more on product, and you you have that speed, and you develop fantastic things for the customers. Uh, speed keeps rising, keep on going, and again, you have that pressure of actually having to deliver uh, at that speed all the time, right? So you kind of lose sight of actually keep moving on and mm -hmm. improving yourself. And again, at some point, there's not enough time or space to actually stop up and and, and evaluate uh, and take the next step maybe that's true that's true yeah it's linked I think it, yeah go on johnny I, I interrupted you then sorry it's very very quick one i said that i suppose you have to question whether that performance or that 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 kind of rate was sustainable even though it's maybe kind of come to this point over a long period of time i suppose mm. that sustainable pace question comes into comes into play it's linked to both but I, both your questions really they are quite similar but um, Jeff you remember a while back I think it was in Portugal we did a, a, a talk on um, the fluffy side of Agile mm. do you remember that? Yeah um, and it was largely about how measuring success and you know teams pay a lot of attention to what what gets uh, measured for success, right? So in terms of what our performance in our team or our organization share price, whatever it might be, the things that tend to get measured are the things that are easier to measure. So Gianni, you measured, you said compliance rather than engagement. Compliance is easier to measure than engagement. Um, and, you know, kind of improvements are, are, are easier to measure if they're maybe, you know, cycle time or maybe their um, productivity or you know, velocity, they're easy to measure. The things that are harder to measure are the things that we believe, well, I'll say I believe, make us get up in the morning and come to work. So what motivates you, you know, kind of engagement and, and experimentation and creativity and uh, working with, you know, working as a team, they're hard to measure. Um, and I don't have a great answer for that, but it's, it's a question of are we measuring, are the team, do the teams feel they're being measured on on that, on the right things? And are they just viewing success as compliance metrics 
rather than actually making them more happy. You know, do, how can you measure joy as a metric? It's, it's very difficult, but it's not impossible. I'm going to take a harder line on this, just, just for the hell of it. And, yeah, I, I, would, I would be one of the first people to say that working in an agile environment generally leads to happier people, happier teams. And as a result of happier people and happier teams, you get better results. I, I would generally subscribe to that view. However, for the purposes of, of, of expanding this conversation, I'm going to make a suggestion that it's a job. You're working for an organization that's paying your salary. This organization has a responsibility quite often to shareholders. And uh, if, if things just carried on about making teams happy, this company could quite happily go bust or become extinct. Now, there are needs that the organization has that as a as a good corporate citizen, I would be I would kind of be expected to to align with. So to take my example of resilience earlier on, and, and the idea of complacency leading to the, the, your Kodak moment, maybe as an organisation we realise that actually just like having one functional expert in a team is a big bottleneck and a big risk, uh, a big bust factor. Having a team that's just focused in one area and become very very good at that area. They may have become very resilient as a team, but they're not helping the organization's overall resilience. So as an organization, we need greater organizational level resilience, which might mean that you have to start doing different things so that if all the market moves in a different direction, we're not constrained by our um, sort of hard, hardened, solidified, calcified team-based skills. Uh, does that make sense? Yeah, but basically what you're saying is that uh, if one out of uh, my six teams, for example, if I suddenly remove one of those six teams, mm -hmm. I'll be still resilient in the organization. Yeah. yeah. Or if, if the market shifts away from what that one team is really, really good at, can mm -hmm. we cope with that? Mm. Yeah. Like T-shaping uh, at a team level. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, but yeah, and ultimately at an organizational level, right? Because we don't know what's going to happen in a lot of the markets that we're operating in. Um, maybe maybe insurance isn't one of the most volatile, but it's certainly got a, a certain level of volatility. Um, there's there's a lot that we don't know yet, and there's a lot that we can't predict. And so, having that level of cross functionality, not just at the individual level or at the team level, but at the organizational level, is important for an organization's long term survival. Uh, and so, yeah, we're going to make this a nice place to work, but equally, we need you to help us become a resilient organization. I mean, if you consider all the social restrictions that are in place, um, my current client basically uh, are very dependent on their physical branch network. Mm -hmm. So this has really kind of hit home for them that actually, you know, their, their, their kind of view on life and business model really has to change. Yeah. Um, so it's a big shift for them. Uh, you know, it's it's a very traditional company, very, very cult culturally set in their ways. Um, mm. So very different challenges to yours, pair about having a team that think they're they're kind of flying high. Mm. That was interesting. So we had another question from somebody who's not here with us. I'd be interested in you, your thoughts on this one, actually. So Andreas, another one of our our patrons. He asked, oh, Paul, you're opening a different can. Sorry, I mean, I that looks different. It is. I told you what I had two different drinks. Before yeah, you I know, but for you. 
Well, no, you're not. Yeah, well, it's not that different. Thatcher's lemon. Yeah, Ooh, cloudy put, lemonade. Yeah, can you see that? It's not. Thatcher's cloudy lemon. That, I'm not. I've not drunk this before. Did you, you you tried it, Jess? Didn't you? Did you try it? Possibly. But I'm going to try it. I'm trying fruity stuff tonight, so I'm going down the lemon. I'm going to be going to mix the glasses as well. So, sorry, carry I'm on. not ashamed. To, I'm not ashamed to say that crates of that have passed through the soy household. Okay. <laughs> you can recommend it, can you, Gianni? Oh, big fan. Really? Nice. I'll let you know. Yeah, carry on. Okay. Yeah. So Andreas was was uh, giving another. Let's let's assume it was a hypothetical scenario of a small startup with about four teams in it. Paul's nodding excitedly. Oh, it's it's got first. a good aroma. It's got a good aroma. I'm not listening to the questions anymore. I'm just drinking. Carry on. Okay. And um, <laughs> working out what the extent of the product owner's accountability is. So if, if the product owner is being assumed to be accountable for the you know, financial market success of their products, should they have, have the ability to decide on pricing, um, rebates, promotion, sales, marketing, all that kind of stuff? And of course, the, the, the Scrum Guide if you're looking for official lines, doesn't really give a huge amount of explicit guidance on that. So this is a small company um, and the accountability and where's the responsibility. So it'd be interesting in, in your organizations that you see at the moment, how much responsibility does a product owner have and how does that line up with their accountability? Pat, do you want to go? Yeah. Um... Yeah, well, uh, our product owners are accountable for almost everything, but the, I would say the budget, but that's not totally true. I have a product owner that's uh, accountable for, for budget as well, uh, but that's all kind of where it stops. Mm-hmm. Um, so we kind of we try to give uh, as much um leverage to the po's as possible um but when it comes to the finances uh, it kind of stops yeah um and then again who is in in the situation where the product owners aren't responsible for the finances who is uh different uh department heads uh uh in the different areas. So you mentioned the marketing, for example. Yeah, so the marketing, the head of marketing is responsible for for marketing, right? But uh, I have a product owner that's uh, head of uh, digital sales. Uh, So maybe he should actually in in real life, I I would say maybe he should uh, have more responsible of marketing budget as well, because Mm -hmm. his main goal is actually to optimize the, the sales of the digital channel, right? So, but he's not responsible for that. He's only responsible for the budgeting of the sales itself. Right. Um, I think I think it is quite a rarity, isn't it? And I'm just going by my experiences here. But I do believe that better product ownership will involve budgetary, aware, at least awareness, even if you don't have direct control. But I'll be honest, I don't find and come across many product owners that say they've got exclusive access and responsibility to to agree change extend the budget i mean i'm just me would would you agree with that jeff gianni or or not well gianni gets to go first because he's on the ground so what what do you see yeah so i mean i've experienced quite a wide array of scenarios i mean 
currently in, in my active scenario, I would say that the PO currently has far less control than uh, your description per. So um, to the point where even making really big decisions on the product itself has to go through various committees. And again, I think this is all linked back to the kind of the very traditional kind of setup of the, of the business. Um, I've also been working in teams where um, the product owner is literally given um, some targets and some money and then free license to go and go and do that and almost given a cross-functional team to work with. Um, it's essentially, here's all the tools, here's all the money. Let's see if you can hit this target by the end of the you know, financial year type thing. And that might just be things like, you know, newsletter signups or something like that. But it, but that that's only been in a very um, well-structured organization where every team really knows how they're feeding into that top level organizational strategy. Mm. Um, and then there's been very, very varying kind of things in between where um, the product owner has a lot of scope and empowerment around the product itself. But if a decision he makes requires more money, he would require a program manager or project manager to go and seek that extra funding, essentially. So one of my favorite phrases is almost anything is possible, but everything has consequences. And so it's not necessarily what's what, what one should do, but are you prepared for the consequences of the choices that you make? So if, for example, a product owner has to go to another person to get approval for some financial sign-off that they think is necessary for the product, then you're going to have extra wait time. You're going to have some, uh, it's, it's just going to take longer. It's going to cost more. It's not, you're not going to be as responsive. So there's going to be consequences to that. But equally, if you give that person full autonomy, then they could waste a lot of money really, really quickly. So it's it's ups and downs. But so Andreas's question of what would I what would we deem necessary if someone was to be held accountable for the market success of their products? My view is if, if, if you're holding someone accountable for that, you've got to give them the tools to meet it. If you're saying we're going to hold you accountable for whether this is successful or not, but if you think it needs more marketing budget, that's not in your remit. That's unfair, I would say. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's setting somebody up for failure. So usually what, what my focus is, is trying to help people understand what they're really concerned about with giving the product owner autonomy and control over the budget, the tools to do their job, and how they could mitigate some of that concern. So if they're worried about being able, you know, um, wasting loads of money on something really, really quickly without enough safeguards, then having stakeholders in the group, having governance within the group and actually you can only spend a sprint's worth of money anyway then and in sprint planning you can you can forecast the amount of marketing you're going to need based on the features you're going to have over the next few sprints there's there's enough transparency there for the accountability to be appropriate Um, but it's it is taking that leap into the unknown of well we're going to lose our governance we're going to lose our controls we're going to lose all our checkpoints and our safety nets and all that kind of stuff that we had in place but the benefits you get from that are speed uh engagement uh the actual decision making in the hands of the people who who are going to be held accountable for that so they they want to make better decisions uh so that's that's how I see it. And so Paul's direct question: Do I see that? Yeah, I have, and I haven't. 
and for me the, the the ones that have gone so so much better are where the product owner has the tools to be held accountable for the level of accountability the organization expects of them i still think the product owner role suffers a little bit from the legacy around uh, other product based roles as well so and i know it's not in every situation and, and pay you said you've got a good example of this but um, I still hear about a lot of um, product owners who are in effect more team level business analysts. So you can understand in, in from a budgetary sense that traditionally a business analyst wouldn't be given budgetary control and accountability. So I think it's a little bit symptomatic of maybe you could call it a proxy product owner role or whatever you want to call it. But I see more of those um, product owners attending my courses and, and in, in organizations that I do a more senior figure who's providing product leadership who's actually got um their yeah a grasp of of budgetary controls as well as marketing direction and, and, and strategy and product growth so I think that's a rarity from that point of view as well not just budgets but also from the wider the wide uh, the broadness of the role in many senses I would I would add to that the, this, the scenario that Andreas painted there, which is a very small company, four teams. So actually the level of bureaucracy of the head of marketing or the head of sales, there's probably only a few executives in that organization. Yeah, They all know each other. Yeah, they, they can probably all speak to each other on an informal level. They're all probably shareholders. Um, yeah. And so they all, they're all on the same page. So actually... It, it could open up the possibility of somebody being a product owner without necessarily all of the authority, but still be able to do the role through influence and facilitation. And I've seen that not as successfully in large organizations, but where somebody can, can say, look, I'm, I'm in this role to, to try and get the best of the product. And that's going to involve this and it's going to involve this and it's going to involve this. So this is how we're going to try and minimize our exposure, maximize our learning, maximize our, uh, return on investment. Uh, so I need you all to, to play your parts here. So when we need budget, we need to be able to call from you here. We need to line up marketing here. And they can do that uh, because they know the people and they have the relationships without the authority of saying, no, no, I need all the budget under my name. Hmm. And maybe in that scenario, uh, it, it, maybe it's easier to build trust also along the way, right? So you could take smaller steps and keep improving and, and making the the area wider going on mm. um i think that's kind of difficult in the larger companies at least what i see in denmark um you can't really push the boundaries of 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 the financial stuff for example um it's kind of set in stone um even even if you show that you are quite capable of of handling it mm. um, but in a smaller setup maybe you could just push those boundaries along the way. Yeah, I, I would agree. Trust is um, is incremental. It's not it's not binary. And and actually, you can use the agile approach to build confidence in in one's ability and one's decision making in in the in the likely success of the product. Uh, and small investments that go well are likely to lead to greater willingness to make bigger investments, or the same size investments but with less need for in-depth scrutiny uh, and that is hard to, to to prove though in a complex experimental approach isn't it when you're 
you know, as a true entrepreneur, you're going to try a lot of ideas that are going to fail. So if you're just being judged by, you know, the success of your experiments, you know, it does it mean you're a bad product owner if you, I suppose. Well, could... I mean, no, 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 I, I challenge you on that one. And I'd say if I was a product owner, then I would know that I'm going to be failing a lot of the time. Yeah. And equally, the people who are funding me or I'm getting my money from would know that. And if you'd be you'd be looking for me to make cheap failures. So you wouldn't be judging me on, on how successful is he. Maybe you would, but not all the time. But when you do fail, because that's inevitable, is it a cheap failure? Yeah. There's a story, isn't there, about Roxio Software, about they developed 50 games before they developed Angry Birds, nearly, nearly mm -hmm. bankrupt the company. Would you have fired that product owner before they got to game 52 or 53? Seems, seems pretty good. Difficult one, yeah. And it's a yeah. I'm just I'm just being deliberately awkward, but it's um, that's a good question. Yeah, it's it is a difficult one to justify. We and if you look at CVs, um, project managers tend to um, judge the strength of their CV by how much money they've handled, mm -hmm. rather than looking at you know how many experiments they've run or you know how many project failures they've had. So it's yeah. not very cool to um, to to admit you screw things up. Well, if I'm ever interviewing a product owner, that would be one of that's one of the questions that is I ask for. You know, how have you managed to mitigate the inevitable failures that you're going to come across? Yeah. You know, what processes do you have in place to make sure that you can experiment safely, cheaply, quickly? Yeah. Um, because that's that's part of the role. Nice. All right. It all goes. It all go. It all kind of goes hand hand in hand for me, and it, it, it all comes back to kind of you know it's that agility over agile kind of conversation. And, you know, if you've got an idea or a hypothesis, and you've got some sound reasoning and evidence as to why you should be experimenting with that, and you can turn it around within a sprint, and then you can fail fairly soon, and then learn from it. It kind of it all goes hand in hand. You know, it mm. it, it all building that confidence in that product owner then to say, okay, you've now got a team working in a way where well, not necessarily the product owner has got that team working in that, in that way, but um, there is a, a kind of a cross-functional element within our business that actually we can empower with mm -hmm. some money because we can see that they're doing things maybe in a different way or the right way. Um, and maybe those pots of cash, as you say, will get bigger over time. Perfect. Nice way of rounding it off. Thank you. Yeah, so generally, thank you both for, for joining us. That's yeah, thank you very probably much. the closing bell that we're about to hear. Um, yeah, it was, it was nice to have uh, someone other than Paul to, to talk. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, mate. Nice to see you too. <laughs> Haven't seen you all week. Yeah, carry on. <sighs> <laughs> yeah, uh, that's great. So look after yourselves, everybody. Look after yourselves, guys. And um, see you soon. Cheers, chaps. Cheers. Cheers. Nice yeah. to see you. Cheers. Take care.